Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Elliot Bazzano. For every program, we choose a new and exciting book and chat with the author. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Amir Hussein, Professor of Theological Studies at Loyola Marymount University and former editor of the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, about his engaging book, Muslims and the Making of America, published by Baylor University Press in 2016. Muslims in the Making of America offers a succinct and gripping account of Muslim presence in the United States. The book gives attention to the contemporary moment and also reaches as far back as the days of Columbus, who commissioned an Arabic translator for his potential encounters with Muslims in the New World. The book is meticulously researched and rife with concrete examples, but at just over 130 pages, Amir Hussein's emphasis on brevity is clear and this operates as a key strength of the text. Hussein looks not to present a comprehensive overview of Islam and Muslims in the U.S., but instead guides the reader on a rich journey through some of the most significant ways that Muslims have contributed to the fabric of the country. He focuses on political history, music, and sports in order to convey that although Muslims have never made up more than a few percent of the U.S. population, their presence has proven foundational and visible at every step of the nation's development. From enslaved Africans to convert Alexander Webb to Muhammad Ali and beyond, Hussein demonstrates that despite popular perceptions, Islam was never foreign to the United States. As the mature work of a senior scholar, this monograph shares a personal tone through a variety of on-point anecdotes and reflections on belonging from an American Muslim born in Canada with South Asian roots. Given the user-friendly and timely nature of the publication, Hussein's book will interest students in a variety of college courses, academics looking for an accessible portrait of Islam and Muslims in the U.S., and also lay readers seeking to equip themselves against the barrage of misinformation perpetuated by influential politicians and mainstream media outlets. I hope you enjoy this interview, and without further ado, here's my conversation with Professor Amir Hussein. Good morning, Amir. Thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning. Great to be with you. So I'm really excited to talk with you about your book, Muslims and the Making of America. And I was hoping our tradition here at New Books in Islamic Studies is to first ask our authors to tell us a little bit about how they got interested in Islamic studies in general, as well as their particular book project. So could you say, say a little bit about how you became interested in Islamic studies? Sure. I came through it in a circuitous way. I did an undergrad degree in English, you know, with a minor. Actually, excuse me, I did an undergrad degree in psychology with a minor in English. And it was through the English minor that I got interested in studying religion. You know, you couldn't study Shakespeare and Blake without knowing the Bible, didn't know the Bible. So I took a course in the Bible and I'm thinking, you know, this is a junior university. Maybe I should take a course in Islam. I'm a Muslim. I've grown up Muslim, don't really know a lot about my own tradition. And took a, a intro to Islam class. It was a junior, and that's sort of what got me hooked. Uh, starting about my own tradition, doing those kinds of things. Um, ended up switching over and doing a master's and a PhD, looking at Muslim communities in uh, Toronto. And so that was in the uh, 1990s in Canada when we were just sort of beginning to do sort of serious work on Islamic studies in Canada. Um, 
so that was really the, the, you know, how I got into this. So, you know, partly as a, as a Muslim growing up in Canada, partly trying to figure out my own identity, partly, you know, wanting to be a academic. Uh, so that really, uh, uh, helped out. And so in your transition from English to religious studies or a combination rather, who are some influential, uh, mentors and authors that you encountered? Yeah. Well, I had this extraordinary privilege of being at the university of Toronto, which, you know, happened to be my local university and, you know, the best university in uh, Canada. And so, you know, the English professors were people like Northrop Fry and Jerry Bentley, you know, phenomenal scholars of Shakespeare and Blake. And then when I transferred into religion, you know, that was at a time when the university of Toronto's religion program really was the top program in the country. So it was Will Oxtoby was my supervisor, who's a really interesting person working in comparative things. Uh, Jane McAuliffe was one of the readers of my dissertation. I got really excited when she had come back to Toronto. Michael Marmora, this sort of phenomenal scholar of Islamic philosophy, was there. So I was able to do Arabic and philosophy with him. And then Wilfred Cantwell-Smith, you know, really was my mentor. And, and again, uh, Wilfred was, you know, I think the great Canadian scholar of religion, not just of Islam in the 20th century century. He and his wife had retired back to Toronto uh, after Harvard. And so I got to know him for about a dozen years until his death in 2000. So it was extraordinary privilege to be able to be mentored by those kinds of folks and the connections that they had. I mean, it was literally through Michael Marmora that I got introduced to Edward Said because Professor Marmora had been Said's teacher, you know, years ago at St. George's in Jerusalem. So it's this, you know, funny, small world kind of connections. Yeah, and so you, you, you're mentioning now that you grew up and went to graduate school in Canada, and you talk about your Canadian roots in the book as well. So would you be able to reflect a little bit on what you what your thought process was like as you were writing a book about Islam in America, thinking about coming from a Canadian background? Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, oftentimes you have to have been outside of a place to really understand a, a, a place. And so, you know, I grew up in Canada, literally kindergarten to PhD, moved in 1997 to Cal State Northridge, which was my first job. And then in 2005, moved to Loyola Marymount University, which is the Jesuit University in Los Angeles, where I've, I've been teaching ever since. And so for, you know, almost 20 years, I've lived in America. And as a Canadian, you know, you're there for four years before 9-11. 9-11 happens, and there's all sorts of issues that become much more important for the study of Islam in America in a post-9-11 you know, uh, environment. Um, I've, at that point, you know, realized that this is kind of where I wanted to stay. You know, I grew up in Toronto. Uh, I love Toronto, but L.A. is Toronto with better weather. You know, it's really a, a great sort of city. Uh, and so, you know, there's a sense of where do you, where do you see yourself retiring? Well, someplace warm. Uh, and so at that point, it becomes, okay, well, maybe I should get on a green card. And so, you know, uh, got on a, a green card, and that was great. But then uh, the Canadian government, the Stephen Harper government, sort of changed things around. So I could no longer vote vote in Canadian elections because I'd not lived in Canada for five years. So I thought, okay, I'd actually love to be able to vote in the U.S. is really where I want to stay. And I can be a dual citizen. You know, that's one of the great things about the Canada-U.S. relationship. And so in 2013, I became an American citizen, you know, because I, I want to be a citizen. This is where I live in the United States. This is where I work. You know, I want to be able to vote and do those kinds of, of things. And so it was fascinating because, you know, for 20 years, I'd been looking at Muslims in America. My research for the PhD was Muslims in Toronto because that's where I was and that's where I doing the research. But since I moved to Los Angeles, you shift to Muslims uh, in America. And so it's, be, it's great to be able to write the book from the perspective of someone who also is an American citizen. And so 
Could you say what was the what was the inspiration for this book project in in general? And then I'll ask a follow up question after that. Sure. And so you know the the book project came several years ago, and there's sort of two different things going on here. One is uh, the book is published through Baylor University Press, and and Carrie Newman, who's the the director there of their press, is someone I'd known for years. One of my mentors at Toronto, a man named Peter Richardson, phenomenal New Testament scholar, and uh, he had done a book with Baylor about Herod's architecture, and that's where I first met Carrie, and so you know got to know him. There's a relationship there. He came to me uh, almost about. I want to say six years ago now, it's sort of embarrassing to say that, say, you know, we need a book on Islam in America and some of the issues coming up. Because post 9-11, you've had these kinds of issues of American Muslims being almost like a fifth column or un-American or trying to undermine America. And so, you know, Carrie wanted to do that book. And I thought, yeah, it's important to do uh, a book like that that really is written for a more general audience and a press like Baylor has the, the reach to be able to get it out to people that need to read it. By that, I mean, you know, this is a, a press that comes out of uh, Waco, Texas, who can reach people in Texas and Arkansas and Oklahoma. Uh, I'm not saying that there aren't stereotypes of Islam in other places like L.A. and New York, but I think, you know, in, in using a political example in the red states, it's those places that really need to read the book and Baylor can get the book to those uh, folks. So as as you pick up this book and start reading it, it's obvious that you're presenting a particular kind of tone and way of storytelling that you've thought about. You share lots of personal anecdotes. You make these, I think, kind of playful comments about like who your favorite sports teams are mm. and things like this. What what made you decide to write the book in the way that you decided to write it? Yeah, and I think you know the the key here is to write something that's accessible. That I'm a tenured full professor at a you know uh, a very good university. I, I wouldn't have done that without writing the scholarly peer review journal articles and doing the kind of research that you need to do that. Uh, but but that frankly is read by a small group of people. You know, maybe a couple of hundred people in the American Academy of Religion and other kinds of things have read the sort of academic things that I've done. And so the idea was you need to reach out to the folks that really need to hear uh, this. This kind of thing. So that was one reason. The other uh, issue that came up was I taught for three years. We have a new freshman seminar program at, at Loyola Marymount University where faculty teach, you know, in their area of interest to freshman students. And so I proposed a course called Islam and the Building of America, which I've taught for, uh, you know, three years. And so in the course of, of teaching students, you realize that what works for students is what works for adults. It's stories. You know, how, how do you introduce ideas? Well, you tell stories. And so I try to do it in this accessible way. You know, there's a bibliographic note at the end if you want more detailed information, but there's no footnotes uh, in the book. There's no, you know, critical scholarly apparatus because it's not written for scholarly audience. You know, the scholarly audience already knows this kind of material. It's the ordinary folks, uh, as I said, in the post sort of 9-11 American context that have these negative views of Islam and Muslims that you want to be able to address. And so on that note, before we jump in directly to the content of the book, how would you characterize the present political mood in the United States surrounding Islam and Muslims, and what are the chief challenges in getting the kind of audience you want to engage with this book to do that? 
Yeah, and, it, and it's it's tough, you know, post the the election of, of President-elect Donald Trump, you know, who surrounded himself with people who have gone in a fairly Islamophobic kind of way. So you have his national security advisor, you know, t- Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, who has said that Islam is not a religion, it's a political ideology, which means it's not protected in the Constitution, who's literally called Islam a cancer. You know, you've got uh, Chris Kobach, the man from uh, Kansas who created the national security entry exit registration system, you know, which targeted 82,000, you know, uh, Muslims between, what, 2002, 2011, resulted in no prosecutions. This is the same guy that did the Senate Bill 1070 in Arizona, you know, where they asked the uh, uh, Arizona police to do immigration kinds of things. That got, you know, uh, uh, a challenge from the Supreme Court saying it was unconstitutional. And so, you know, the, the idea that, uh, President-elect Trump is surrounding himself uh, with people who don't particularly like Islam and Muslims, and that came out in the uh, discussion, you know, this proposal of a Muslim registry, this sense of extreme, 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 whatever that means, vetting for uh, immigrants from Muslim-majority countries. So I think even more so, there's that kind of tension that says, you know, Muslims are somehow suspect, somehow to be feared, somehow not uh, American. And so you hope that the book goes out there to people who, you know, may have may have those views or may not know the, the, the reality of Islam in America. And again, that's why I think Baylor as a press can do that, because it can reach out to uh, to those folks. Right. And one of the refrains in your book, of course, is to push against this idea that Islam is somehow essentially foreign to the United States. And I think you do a really good job of moving throughout history fluidly and showing how Muslims are, you know, just this essential part of American building blocks. And so one of the figures you look at is Thomas Jefferson. And I was wondering, you say something interesting. You say Jefferson was no fan of Islam, but you, of course, put that in context. And so how, how is someone like Thomas Jefferson, how did he have a different kind of view towards Muslims than some of the figures you've just mentioned uh, related to Trump and his cabinet. No, I, I think that's a great uh, uh, analogy there. So you look at someone like Mr. Jefferson, you know, one of our founding fathers, the third president. Well, you know, he's interested in comparative things, which when you're writing the Declaration of Independence is an important kind of thing. And so here's a guy who purchases a copy of the Quran. You know, here's a guy who begins to teach himself Arabic in order that he can better understand that religious text. Now, you know, Jefferson's a deist. He's not really a big fan of, of, uh, you know, organized religion, whether it's Christianity or Islam, but this is at a time in which, you know, you really got the world of the Ottoman Turkish Empire and the European, you know, kinds of empires sort of competing with uh, each other. But here's Jefferson, who, when he drafts even uh, not the Declaration of Independence, but the Virginia Statute on Religious Freedom, you know, this very important question that comes up, does religious freedom in America mean religious freedom for Christians? Or does religious freedom mean religious freedom for anyone, whether they're Christian, Muslim, Hindu, Jewish, you know, whatever, whatever? And Mr. Jefferson very clearly goes in the direction of, no, 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 no. Religious freedom is religious freedom. It's not just for Anglicans and Baptists and Quakers. It's for Muslims and Jews and, and Hindus. Yeah, you know. And so I think that was this extraordinary kind of moment. And that's one of the great things about, uh, about this country, about America, is that sense of religious freedom. You know? and, and I think Mr. Jefferson had that, even with a religious tradition that he didn't particularly care for. Mm-hmm. 
And then if we fast forward to Obama, you, you spent some time talking about him and his speech about Islam that he gave in Cairo. How would you how would you characterize some of the ways Obama has engaged with the question of Muslims and Islam in America? Yeah, and and so you know he's almost been forced to deal with it with all the kind of uh, uh, allegations or innuendos of him being a, a secret Muslim, you know, and and he's not. Uh, but just this idea that someone named Barack Hussein, you know, obviously must be a Muslim because that's a Muslim name, you know, that's one of those kinds of stereotypes. Uh, and so I think for him, you know, growing up uh, where he did and then and being in Chicago, you know, uh, interacting with South Asian communities. I mean, it, it's lovely for me as, as a native speaker of Urdu to hear a president who pronounces Pakistan properly and not, you know, Pakistan, uh, you know, but but ha- and I'm sure that's because you have folks on Devon Street that, you know, you hang out with and tell you, you know, how things are. And so, you know, the background, of course, impressed me. But then in a funny way that really was the the genesis of of my genesis of the book was that speech he gave in 2009 so here's uh, President Obama elected in 2008. His really first major speech outside the U.S. Uh, in in June of 2009 is in Cairo, at Cairo University, and he's talking about the history of Islam in America. And I thought this was this brilliant kind of piece that you you typically don't get uh, an American president who's that well versed in the history of Islam in America. Um, and I was like, I, I I don't know who you know was the researcher on that report. I'd, I'd love to you know say hello to them and say thank you for that. You know because it really was well done. And so I really appreciated what was going on uh, with him. So. And so something else you're constantly juxtaposing, which I think keeps the book engaging and keeps the reader on his toes to a certain degree, is you're moving between different types of figures and aspects of American culture. And so you talk about Jefferson and Obama, and then you shift things to sports, and you actually introduce the book by talking about Muhammad mm-hmm. Ali. And what... Why was that the figure you wanted to hone in on at the beginning? Yeah, and so, you know, the the book was written before Ali's death, but fortunately I was able to uh, revise it afterwards. Like the original introduction didn't, you know, feature Muhammad Ali in the same kind of way, although the, 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 the section of the book certainly did. And so I think part of it was just that reaction of love and support post uh, uh, Ali's death part of it was that this is the most famous man in America. And this is a man who was famous long before the internet and social media. And this is an American Muslim. So what does it mean that the most famous, you know, man in America uh, was an American Muslim? And we don't think about the Muslim part of that. We think about the American uh, part of that. I mean, here's uh, Billy Crystal, you know, at the, at the eulogy for uh, Ali said something to the effect, you know, when Ali helped him with the scholarship at Hebrew university, like fundraise for that, you know, this was the most famous Muslim man in the world helping out his Jewish friends. So perhaps Ali was even the most uh, famous Muslim, you know, in the world, but as an American. And so I think reminding people of that and grounded in the context of, of the 21st century. What, what I mean by that is, you know, Ali refused induction in 1967 to the Vietnam War. That was not a popular stance in 67. Ali stood for civil rights when civil rights was not popular uh, in America. And, you know, fast forward 50 years later, you have Black Lives Matter you see exactly the same kinds of things, you know, exactly the same kind of rhetoric. Why are these people doing this? What's going on? Aren't things better? Maybe you shouldn't do these kinds of things. That's what we said about Dr. King. Yeah. You have this line that made, made me laugh out loud. So I say, LOL, literally here, where you talk about how 
the irony was not lost on you that you were viewing his funeral in a Islamic prayer service on Fox News. Right. And no. I, really, and fact, I appreciate that. News. Yeah, Fox News did a live, you know, broadcast, not just of the funeral service, but, you know, the Janazah prayer service, you know. So you, you frame things by showing the reader Muhammad Ali, and lots of people might not think about that he's Muslim, even though he's got this name, which, like, couldn't be more Muslim, but, um, you know, it's sort of the luxury people have of thinking they can they can ignore that. And so... Before we, we jump into the other themes of the book, uh, ranging from music and institutions to lots more sports figures, what's, what's an outline of key events of the history of Islam in America that you'd like our listeners to know about? Yeah, and so, you know, the, the first line of the book is literally there's never been an America without Islam. And I think that that's the key there, that, you know, during the, the second presidential debate, uh, Mrs. Clinton said something like, you know, American Muslims have, have been in this country since uh, the time of George Washington. And I'm like, no, we've been here generations before George Washington. So if you go back to the transatlantic slave trade, you know, you've got slaves from West Africa, you've got slaves that accompany uh, Spanish explorers who of course, are, are Muslim. And so, you know, you've got a Muslim slave who's dead and buried in America 80 years before the pilgrims land here. So I think that that's really the first kind of key thing to say, look, there have been Muslims in this country since before this country was this country. You know, we often don't think about the history of slavery. You know, I didn't think about that till uh, when I was a little kid and watched uh, Roots, you know, when that came on television, the, the original miniseries. And you think, wait a minute, Kunta Kinte is, is a Muslim? You know, uh, what does that mean? There were Muslims who were slaves. And you think, well, of course, that makes sense. If you come from West Africa and Islam is a majority tradition in certain places in West Africa, you're going to have West African Muslim slaves, you know, there. So I think that that beginning, that history there. And then, you know, after that uh, uh, transatlantic slave period, in the colonial period, you have sort of interactions with us of the Ottoman Empire and the way that Mr. Jefferson did. You have immigrants uh, coming over. Uh, uh, from different parts of the Muslim world, many of whom you know brought here. You know, the first mosque in this country was built in in Maine in 1915 uh, because the guy that owned a mill there had brought in Albanian workers who happened to be Albanian Muslim workers who then you know were there in, in enough numbers that they could build a a mosque there. So you have Muslims you know coming to work in factories. You have Muslims in Dearborn. I, I came out of the the Ford plant uh, culture in in Canada. You know, my dad spent summer. My dad spent some. Uh, my dad worked uh, building trucks for Ford. I spent summers, you know, building trucks there. But that was Dearborn, you know, same thing in America where you had, uh, you know, uh, uh, Arabs and, and Turks and Syrians, you know, coming over uh, to work uh, for Mr. Ford's plants there. So there's a history here of Islam uh, in America. And then really dealing with the 20th century of some of the important uh, figures and, and this idea, not at all that American Muslims are the key ingredient in what it means to be American. That That's ridiculous. But that, you know, America would be very different if, it, it, if there weren't Muslims uh, in this country, you know, in its history and certainly in its present. Right. And since one of the audiences you've identified are people that may be misinformed and influenced by certain types of discourses that want to paint Islam and Muslims in superficial, negative sorts of lights, what, as you get into a lot of the cultural topics, it's clear that you're talking about mostly non-white people. 
And right. if your audience is mostly white people, yeah. what do you what do you say to this audience in terms of the importance of understanding race relations in the United States yeah. as a key ingredient to understanding Muslims in the United States? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a couple of things there. You know, one is just simply the demographic makeup. So if we look at American Muslims, roughly speaking, at least a quarter to a third of us are African-American. You know, at least a third of us are South Asian. You know, people like me from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, you know. About a third of us are Middle Eastern and Middle Eastern, you know, in, in Iran, excuse me, in Los Angeles, it may be Iranian, it could be Arab, it could be Turkish. But, you know, the majority of America's Muslims are people who, to use crude characteristics, are, are black or brown folks, you know, uh, uh, black folks, Asians, uh, brown folks, you know, that kind of thing. You, you, obviously, you have white people who are Muslim, you know, converts, people born into Muslim families. You have other uh, ethnicities. But Islam really is, uh, in America, uh, a majority non-white sort of phenomenon. So you have to understand, first of all, the reality of American Muslim life is is the sense of being racialized. Two, you know, uh, this goes back to what I was saying before about the slave trade. I don't know that we actually teach about the history of slavery properly so that people understand, you know, the horrors and the institutional legacies that were left there. And I think, you know, 50 years ago, people, when they were asked, should Dr. King march on Washington, you know, two thirds of Americans said, no, that's not a good idea. That's too, uh, too much of an issue, you know, too much of an in your face kind of thing. Like, why do you need to do something like that? And it's like, really? Like you, like two thirds of white Americans thought that the march on Washington wasn't a good idea. Why, why are we surprised that people don't think Black Lives Matter uh, is an important movement? So I think, you know, we've got all sorts of racial issues uh, in this country and Muslims are in the thick of that because the majority of us are, are black folks or brown folks. And so particularly, you, you notice the largest minority group of Muslims in the United States are, are black African-Americans. Right. And when you talk about music and sports, especially, uh, there's a lot of focus on African-Americans in particular. What what is it about these particular arenas that have attracted um, African Americans to Islam through sports mm -hmm. and music? So uh, I think, you know, some of it goes back to the history that I was saying, the fact that, you know, the 10% uh, of the West African slaves who were brought over were Muslim. And so you've got that sense of this may well have been our original religious tradition when we came here. Then certainly, you know, in the 50s and 60s, with the rise of, of uh, Malcolm X, the Nation of Islam, Elijah Muhammad, you know, this notion of conversion to Islam as being a political statement, as being as much about the racism in America as about any kind of religious thing. So you have, for example, two, two, two different folks. Muhammad Ali converts via the Nation of Islam and is very much a political kind of statement. Akrim Abdul-Jabbar uh, has written very powerfully about the fact that when he converted, it really wasn't a political statement. It was a spiritual statement. He found in Islam a, a solace and a religious life that he didn't have in his, you know, Catholic uh, world. And so I think uh, for folks, especially African-American folks, you know, you may convert to Islam uh, precisely because of the racism that you saw in the 50s, 60s, you know, 70s in America. Or you may convert to Islam because, you know, this may have been the tradition of your ancestors or you may convert to Islam because this may create a, a religious home. 
uh, for you. But so I think there's that part. The other part is that, you know, African-Americans by definition are Americans. You know, they have no other home. You know, yes, you came from Africa, but that was 400 years ago. You know, you're American. You're not someone like me, you know, who was born in a different uh, country and moved to another country within their own lifetime. And so one of the first musical figures you introduce with perhaps an unlikely pairing uh, with Kid Rock is yeah. a gentleman, Ahmed Erdogan, uh, and I apologize to our listeners if I'm slaughtering the pronunciation. And he's, a, he's an interesting figure who had an incredibly large influence on American music. You spend several pages talking about yeah. him. What what's what strikes you about this individual? Well, and he so he was one of my great heroes. You know, I, I grew up listening to Atlantic Records and the kind of Atlantic R and B sides, the Atlantic soul sides. I mean, that was that's American music. And then you start looking back at this and say, how did this come to be? Well, here's this this man, uh, Mehmet Erdogan. You know, who is the Turkish ambassador? I think the second Turkish ambassador to the U.S. and brings with him his family, including his. Uh, uh, sons. And the sons, of course, like any decent teenagers, are definitely born in Washington, you know, uh, at, at that time in the 40s. And so they sneak off into the black neighborhoods, into Howard, that kind of thing. They start listening to the music. They're already listening to some of that music in London. Their father had been the uh, ambassador in London. And so Emmett, uh, with his Jewish friend and money from like a dentist, you know, friend of theirs creates Atlantic Records and signs all these amazing people, including, you know, Ray Charles. Uh, this is the man who wrote Mess Around for Ray Charles. This is the man who signed the, the uh, Led Zeppelin to Atlantic Records. This is the man who distributed Rolling Stones records, you know, uh, via Atlantic uh, Records. And so he's this American Muslim. Now, in a very interesting way, and I write about this in the book, very much a secular sort of Muslim. Like we think of Muslims in America as being completely religiously devout. You know, I, I, I steal a line from my friend uh, Ruben Firestone, who says, you know, we think of all Muslims as Hasidic Muslims, you know, I, met I, with. I love that, by the way. That was another <laughs> chuckle moment I got to have. No, it's a great line from Reuven, and I try to use it whenever I can. But, you know, that's our image of Muslims as these men with long beards who are incredibly devout and observant in their prayers. I can think, well, you have that, but you also have Muslims who drink. You also have Muslims who smoke. You also have Muslims who do things that they shouldn't be doing, you know, as Muslims. You know, L.A.'s largest religious population are Catholics. L.A.'s second largest religious population is ex-Catholics. You know, why are we surprised that that's the same thing? You know, we talk about secular Jews. We talk about, you know, secular Christians. They're secular Muslims. And so going back to Ahmed Erdogan, this was someone like that, very much a sort of bon vivant drinker, partier, uh, you know, amazing kind of guy. But at his roots, you know, coming from a very distinguished Turkish Muslim family, you know, the grandfather was the head of a Sufi lodge. His body is taken back to be buried, uh, you know, in, in exactly that same, you know, uh, family cemetery, you know, kind of uh, uh, a place. And so here you have this American Muslim who's completely changed the face of, of America. You know, can you imagine, I'd say in the book, an America without Atlantic records? That's a very different America than the America that actually exists. And it's this Turkish Muslim guy who's uh, responsible for that. And so mo- moving on to hip hop and rap, you, you discuss some important influences and individuals in American hip hop culture. 
Were there particular figures that stood out to you as you researched this part of the book? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, that becomes important for the kind of music that my students listen to. You know, again, so part of the genesis of this book was this course that I taught. And, you know, Atlantic Records, Ray Charles, that's old people music to the kids. They don't listen to that music, you know. But they listen to Lupe Fiasco. They listen to Wu-Tang Clan. They listen to, you know, NWA. And so to say, well, what does it mean that, you know, most of the guys in Wu-Tang are Muslim? You know, Ice Cube from NWA is Muslim. Lupe Fiasco is Muslim. You know, uh, uh, Buster Rhymes, uh, Most Def, you know, uh, uh, now uh, Yasin Bey, uh, Talib Kweli. You know, the uh, Tribe Called Quest, after the book came out, Tribe Called Quest uh, came up with a new record. And, you know, a couple of guys there are Muslim. And so I think that becomes this interesting sort of way through which the message of Islam is expressed uh, through the music. You know, you listen to that music and you will get Islamic themes coming through. And you also mention, which I think will surprise people reading the book, uh, there's a Grateful Dead connection. Yeah. Uh, could you say yeah. something about that? The blues Absolutely. for Allah? And, you know, it was a funny thing because I, I didn't grow up a deadhead, but I certainly grew up with friends who were. And, you know, you have this record, 1975, Blues for Allah. And I'm like, why is this band using this record? And you and you play that song. And they really only, and I, I talked to, you know, deadhead friends, and, and they only played that song in concert, I think, the year that the record came out. And there's a you know, refrain in the in the thing about blues for Allah and Shatlah. And so, like, so wait, the dead are singing in Shatlah? Like, you know, if God wills it in, like, 1975? And the liner notes, uh, you know, Robert Hunter talks about the, the Saudi king uh, who'd been uh, unfortunately killed as being a deadhead. And I'm like, wait, wait, like, you go back to that you're saying a king of saudi arabia was a deadhead who was a fan of the uh, of the dead you know and then you get uh you know the the grateful dead coming to egypt playing at giza you know i, I was on a, a trip to israel as an undergraduate student actually led by peter richard the man i mentioned you know with the with the book at baylor university press and you know you're in egypt and you see like these grateful dead t-shirts i'm like why are there grateful dead t-shirts in egypt because i wasn't a deadhead and you realize oh they actually they played here like 10 years ago at the pyramids they did that kind of thing and they jammed with musicians like Hamza al-Din you know so fascinating fascinating connections that you know again you think of Americana you think of classic American music and the Grateful Dead are certainly part of that canon and what does it mean that they've got this record called Blues for Allah you know which they dedicate to the king of Saudi Arabia right and so if we move from music to sports Mm -hmm. uh, in addition to Muhammad Ali, there's many, many other figures you mentioned. One in particular who you've briefly alluded to already is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah. And, you know, you know that, you know, the winningest college basketball yeah. coach of all time has referred to him as no less than the best basketball player he's aware of. And so what, what could our listeners know about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's mm -hmm. ties to Islam? And, and Kareem is this fascinating, fascinating person who just, uh, it was what, November 22nd, that he got the Presidential Medal of Freedom, you know, from uh, from President Obama, you know, the, the nation's highest sort of civilian honor. And you see this this guy, you know, who was this amazing basketball player, heavily recruited out of high school, goes to UCLA, 
wins three championships for Coach Wooden because that's in the day when freshmen can't, you know, uh, compete, uh, goes pro first with Milwaukee, then with the Lakers, you know, wins all these titles, is the NBA's all time leading scorer. And no one thinks of him. You know, when people ask, when I ask my students, who's the greatest basketball player in the world? You know, some of them now say Steph Curry because they don't remember their past. Some say LeBron, you know, some that know the past will say Michael Jordan. I'm like, no one says Kareem. And you want to say, but, but this guy has won as many championships as, uh, you know, as any of those figures. He's the all-time leading scorer. He won three national championships. You know, this extraordinary figure. But he was also outspoken. You know, he was part of the Olympic Project for Human Rights. He didn't uh, uh, play in the 68 Olympics, but he was part of the discussions about boycotts for that. Someone that's been, you know, uh, active, uh, really extraordinarily bright guy. But he, you know, grows up Catholic and and converts to Islam, as he says, not because of the political kind of thing, but because of the spiritual. So he never found, you know, a spiritual home in Catholicism. He found that in Islam. And he came to that, uh, you know, when he was at uh, UCLA. And so the fact that, you know, for all of his career as an NBA player, that this is a Muslim guy, you know, and we don't think about that, you know, that what does it mean that perhaps the, I mean, in my opinion, not perhaps, but the best player, certainly the leading scorer in the NBA is an American Muslim. Right. And so you draw this distinction between Muhammad Ali, who uh, articulates political, the the ways in which Islam informs his political views, and then someone like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who sees this spiritual component as at least somewhat uh, distinct. What what do you think is at stake for Muslim sports players to be outspoken about how their Islam informs their public views? Yeah, and, and so I think there's a larger question there, first of all, of our sports figures outspoken, that you look at someone like Colin Kaepernick, who pays a heavy price for, you know, expressing his political uh, opinions. I write in the book about my friend Gary Smith, this phenomenal writer for Sports Illustrated, who once wrote a piece saying, why don't we see athletes speaking out anymore? You know, in 68, we saw athletes speaking out. You know, we saw Jim Brown speak out. We saw Muhammad Ali speak out. We saw Kareem, you know, uh, speak out. We saw Tommy Smith and John Carlos sent home from the Olympics for, you know, doing the Black Power uh, salute. Why is it that we haven't seen that? Well, it's the money. You know, you're paid a lot of money to be quiet and toe the corporate line. And so when you have people that don't do that, I think that's, that's extraordinary. So I think there's those kinds of things. Then you have the kind of prejudice and bias so that um you know if you are a muslim you may be seen as as sort of suspect if you are an observant muslim what do you do when you know ramadan comes and you can't eat which means your your uh uh performance diminishes you know what do you do if you want to take time off uh you know the the abdallah brothers for example in in the nfl you know both of whom are muslim we're gonna take a year off we're gonna make the hajj you know your coach doesn't kind of like you taking a year off in the middle of your uh, uh uh contract you know and so what do you do for religious reasons now that's no different than let's say a sandy kufax you know i don't pitch on the lord's day i don't pitch on yom kippur you know i'm not going to do that my religion is more important to me uh, there, so you know, sometimes that can be seen as a a good thing. Other times, it, it's seen as, in a problematic kind of way. Mm-hmm. What What do you think the average American sports viewer? How, how much do you think the average American sports viewer cares about the religious affiliation of their their heroes? 
Yeah, it's kind of interesting because I think, you know, the average person probably doesn't care because, you know, the average person just in America is Christian. There's lots of Christian athletes. So they may take into account, you know, when someone uh, gets down on one knee or, or, you know, surrenders to God or gives thanks to Jesus, you know, kind of thing. But I think if you're in a minority tradition, I think you hear now of Jews and Muslims in particular, that's important to you because, you know, you you will say, and my Jewish friends are exactly the same as Muslim friends, you know, that guy's Jewish, you know, that guy's Muslim, you know, and you you almost have to say that because you're a minority. You know, when you're in the majority, you can sort of take it for granted. But to say, you know, that 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 boxer, that boxer is a Muslim, you know, and oftentimes for me, and I start the book with that, you know, when I was a kid growing up in Canada in the 70s, you didn't see brown people on television. You didn't see Asians on television. You know, the the, the people that I saw of color were African-American uh, folks, you know, and so uh, there's been a connection for me there with people who were African-American. So to be able to point to Kareem and say, no, that guy's actually a Muslim. That guy's like me. Yeah. So the the Olympics over the summer, we had our first um, female Muslim woman to wear hijab, participate in the Olympics, ended up winning a medal. How how does this fit into the evolving narrative of Muslims in sports in American history? Would you say? Yeah. And I think that that's a great, so you're talking about the fencer, you know, Ibtihaj yeah, Muhammad. Yeah. Wonderful. I mean, here's this woman in the hijab to say that's perfectly normal, that you can, you know, wear the hijab and not be an oppressed woman. That You can be, you know, at the elite level. I mean, what's more elite than an Olympic uh, medalist, that you're not this, you know, weak, submissive, you know, sort of person, but that your understanding of your religious tradition is that you wear the hijab. You know, I think that that's, that's crucial. And again, you know, uh, lots of folks uh, who come from majority cultures, don't really think about that because there's tons of, of Christian athletes, you know, who have won uh, uh, gold medals, uh, you know, so for those of us from minority communities, it becomes a more important kind of thing. But also that sense of, of normalization that you can be a woman in hijab and be an Olympic athlete, you know, and I think that's extraordinary. You know, we, we talk all the time as academics about who's at the front of the classroom. And if you've grown up, I mean, I, I was so fortunate to have strong female role models. I mentioned Jane McAuliffe as one of my mentors, you know, but I, t- I talked to my colleagues who only had men, you know, who, who were there. And so, you know, if all you see are, are, are men, if all you see are white men, if all you see are Christian, you know, men, then you begin to wonder, well, maybe I, can I do this? You know, uh, look at President Obama, you know, you got black kids growing up thinking, I actually can be president. It's not just white folks, you know, who are president. Mm-hmm. And so there's a contrast that you set up as you uh, explore a different section of your book. So you talk about a lot of these um, diverse American institutions like sports and music that you have Muslims participating in. And then there's also specifically Muslim institutions that American Muslims have developed, uh, ranging from you know the Nation of Islam right. uh, to Park 51 in sure. New York. So what are, what are some of these institutions that yeah. stand out that you think are important to keep in mind? And the Nation of Islam, I think, as you mentioned, is really the key one that, you know, here's this fascinating American Islamic movement. So here in America, we've created this thing that really is, I mean, it's it spread out a little bit. Like, they, you know, they sent out uh, missionaries to Canada and other places, but it really is this American phenomenon that goes back to, you know, uh, Detroit and, and W.D. Fard, you know, preaching that the natural religion of black people is Islam and converting uh, Elijah Muhammad, who then converts, you know, Malcolm X. And so this huge history that, you know, we tend to think of civil rights as centered around Dr. King. 
we forget now that Malcolm was was there. And so you look at, you know, James Cohn's uh, uh, book, looking at, at Malcolm and Martin, that you couldn't have the one without the other. And it's kind of fascinating to me how, you know, 50 years later, we have, rightly so, Dr. King is almost this American saint. But we really don't pay attention to Malcolm. And you think, you know, that guy was just as important uh, in this. And so, you know, again, in the context of what was happening in America, in that struggle for civil rights, you've got this American Muslim group. You've got Muhammad Ali, who refuses induction on his religious ground to say, look, I will not fight a war unless it's authorized by the messenger. Now, he meant Elijah Muhammad uh, there, but Elijah Muhammad himself refused induction into uh, the army in World War II, precisely because of his religious beliefs. So you've got this really interesting kind of thing of these are Americans affecting America. These aren't, you know, foreign imports with a foreign religion. This is a homegrown American religion. You know, and now, now that changes completely when Elijah Muhammad dies and his son Warth takes over and brings the nation of Islam basically into Sunni uh, orthodoxy. And and so, in addition to the nation of Islam, there's other groups like the Five Percenters, Five Percenters, Science <laughs> Temple. Yeah. What what? How can understanding these groups more help us contextualize this history that you're exploring? Yeah, and so you know, once the even before Elijah Muhammad's death, you have sort of you know fragmentation. Let's say you know within the nation of Islam, you have this group, the Five Percenters, that comes out of that, and that's really what begins to influence you know rap and hip hop music. That you know, if you've got a going back to African West African traditions of oral cultures, oral learning, going back to the history in America of slaves not being taught to read deliberately not being taught to read and write because that gives them a certain power. So you pass teachings on orally. Well, what's rap and hip hop, but passing things on? I mean, Chuck D very famously 20 years ago said, you know, uh, rap music is black America, CNN. You know, this is how we let people know what's going on uh, there. And so no surprise that the kind of, of hip hop groups I mentioned, you know, a group like Tank Clan, you know, very heavily influenced by the five percenters, you know, uh, and not even the more science temple. You think about, you know, I, I tell the story in the book of the Shriners and the fact that across the street from USC, the University of Southern California, is this elaborate thing that looks like a mosque, but it's the Shrine Auditorium. You know, it was built by the Shriners, this sort of fascination of Americans with, you know, uh, uh, Arab, particularly Egyptian, you know, culture after the King Tut's tomb, you know, kind of uh, discovery. But you have those things across the the country that look like uh, mosques for all intents and purposes. So on this note of monuments as well, there's an important military monument that you point out in the book that surprises a lot of people. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, no, it's one of those things of, you know, when you're um, thinking about the history uh, there, you know, do most Americans know that the oldest military monument, you know, in the United States is the Tripoli Monument, you know, carved uh, uh, in 1806 in Italy, brought to America in 1808 uh, in the Navy Yard, and now currently sits in, uh, not the Navy Yard, but at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis. And so here's this monument to the war against the Barbary Coast Pirates, you know, the, the, the founder of the modern American Navy, John Paul Jones, you know, one of the ways in which he makes his reputation is fighting in these wars against the Barbary Coast Pirates. You know, you, you think of the Marine Hymn, you know, my students all know the first line of that because we're 
or three hours from the Mexican border, you know, from the halls of Montezuma. But then it goes to the shores of Tripoli. And you think, Tripoli, Libya, why are we talking about Libya? Well, it's the Barbary Coast. You know, it, it's this idea that you had to uh, create a navy, basically, you know, once you defeated the British in the Revolutionary War, you know, uh, you had to create a navy to, to secure your shipping lanes. And so the fact that the oldest monument, uh, oldest military monument in America, you know, is his monument to the war against the Barbary Coast Pirates. And if you go there, uh, I'd encourage everyone to come to the, you know, uh, Academy in Annapolis, a beautiful, beautiful place. But you see this monument that has like these, you know, classical Turkish figures of, you know, the, the mustache and the turbans and the scimitars. And so you've got, you know, in 1808 in America, this, this monument that has Muslims on it. And, and so you, you mentioned mosques as well and how the oldest mosque from early 20th century is in Spain. And, of course, there's mosques have continued to be built and continue to be built. And we hear about various mosque-building controversies. Right. And one of the famous or infamous ones is the Park 51, sometimes the so-called Ground Zero Mosque in Manhattan. What was so spicy and controversial about that project? Yeah, and you had so many things happening there that, you know, this was post uh, 9-11. This was in the reconstruction of sort of lower Manhattan. And you had people saying, well, wait a minute. You, now, I should start again that, you know, you had uh, even before 9-11 issues around mosque construction. You know, should we build mosques? Should mosques be allowed to be built? What does that mean? You know, kind of thing. And so uh, post 9-11, especially in lower Manhattan, you know, six blocks away, people are saying, well, no, no, this is sacred ground. It was Muslims that brought down the towers. You can't have a mosque here. And you want to say, well, well, wait a minute. You know, there, there was a mosque in those towers. There's a mosque, you know, Mustard Manhattan that was down there uh, already. There are mosques there that serve low income folks who are in lower Manhattan. And, you know, there's this idea of you don't want to have a mosque there because somehow this is sacred, but there's like a strip club there and somehow that's not uh, uh, sacred, you know, uh, as if somehow American Muslims don't deserve the same rights to to worship, you know, as as non-American, excuse me, as American non-Muslims uh, do. But then also, you know, the literally the dead there that, uh, you know, I talk about the uh, African burial ground, you know, the national monument that was declared a national monument by President George W. Bush, you know, which is a burial ground for African-American slaves, some of whom are Muslims. So you literally have you know, uh, uh, African-American Muslims dead and buried in the soil of lower Manhattan. You know, uh, how does it not get any more sacred than that? Right. And obviously this this refrain, I think it's helpful all the different ways that you, you get at it, which are that, you know, if you look closely, you're just going to find Muslims everywhere in the United States. Again, not that it's like the most important group or something like that. But in its sort of, in the mundaneness of it all is I think where the powerful narrative lies. Absolutely. And then you're know, going back just one more thing about the architecture that absolutely you think of, you know, and I grew up, within New York that had the the Twin Towers. And so it was a very painful moment the first time going back and not seeing those buildings in the skyline and a very proud moment of seeing, you know, the uh, uh, the 9-11 memorial and the monument rise to that. But then you, you go uh, east a little bit to Chicago and say, okay, look at the Chicago skyline. You know, those iconic buildings, the John Hancock building, the Sears Tower. I'm old enough that I still call it the Sears Tower, not, you know, the Willis uh, Tower. That those were built by another... American Muslim, this 
structural engineer, Fazal Rahman Khan. And so can you imagine Chicago without John Hancock building, without the Sears Tower? You know, that's an American Muslim who made those things uh, possible. And so be- before we begin to wrap things up, I had one more question I wanted to ask you about uh, Muslims and popular culture. And so one of the themes you explore is Hollywood and the mm-hmm. entertainment business. And so what are... What are some of the tropes that Muslim celebrities often are are put in and how do people like Dave Chappelle, for example, resist those kinds of tropes? Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of, let's say, American Muslim actors deal with exactly the same issues, uh, especially in the post 9-11 world, as other uh, actors from minority communities. So, you know, am I going to read for the role of drug dealer number two? Am I going to read for the role of, you know, gangbanger number one? Am I going to read for the role of terrorist, you know, number six, you know, kind of thing? And at some level, well, yeah, because this is how I make my money, you know. And so you have those kinds of, of issues and controversies, you know, historically. And Jack Shaheen has this brilliant book called real R-E-E-L bad Arabs that looks at the ways in which Arabs in particular, not Muslims in general, really Arabs, have been demonized in Hollywood cinema. This goes back to some of the first films ever shot, you know, in The Power of the Sultan, the first films shot in L.A. is about this villainous sultan, the Rudolph Valentino Sheikh kinds of uh, films of, of sort of lechery and debauchery, you know, uh, kind of thing, which is fascinating, by the way, that, you know, in the 20s and 30s, the Arab world was seen as licentious and sexual. Now it's seen as completely asexual, you know, kind of thing. But, you know, whatever works uh, uh, for folks is the opposite, you know, that that's there. Um, but then you, you look at, you know, I grew up in the 70s when the Soviets and the communists were the bad guys. And so Hollywood films were about, you know, the good people fighting the bad people, communists, you know. Now you've got uh, Muslims as terrorists, you know. Now it's actually switching over to the Chinese, uh, you know, as that becomes a economic uh, sort of threat. And so I think for a lot of uh, actors, you know, are you out there open as a Muslim? Are you getting parts? You know, uh, do you want to do these kinds of roles? Do, and, and then the other side of it becomes you get pigeonholed, you get typecast that all you play is this kind of uh, person. No actor is a good actor wants that. They want to be able to play a, a variety of roles. And you look at someone like uh, Dave Chappelle, you know, uh, hugely influential in comedy, you know, not outspoken as a Muslim. None of the characters on Chappelle's show were, were Muslim. And yet, you know, here's this American Muslim, you know, making his, his, his mark uh, on television. So I think as we, you know, this is a chance to reflect on the contemporary moment and what could be more, uh, a visible part of American culture, at least to the masses, as something like like Hollywood and the entertainment industry. So, uh, I've really enjoyed chatting with you. And as, as we wrap things up, I was hoping I could ask you to reflect a little bit on where you see things headed, both in terms of developments of Muslims in the United States, yeah. as well as where you see the the study of Islam uh, and books books like this, and what types of projects you hope this book sure. would inspire uh, where, where these types of studies are headed in the next five to 10 years. Yeah. So let me start with that one first that, you know, I've been fortunate to be not, not on the ground floor uh, of this, but, you know, I've, I've been going to the American Academy of Religion meetings, our big academic group since 1992 
1992, there were probably 70 of us in study of Islam section. You know, within a couple of years, I knew pretty much everyone in that section. You know, now I go there and there's 400, 500 people. There's a Quran group, a study of Islam uh, section, Islamic mysticism, uh, women and gender, you know, uh, all sorts of different things. There's this new academic society, the, uh, the International Quranic uh, Studies Association. You know, so to me, it's been fascinating to see just the, the growth in this that I remember when I started doing my dissertation work, you know, there was Avon Haddad, there was Jane Smith. Those were really the pioneers of, of Islam in America. Now there's tons of books uh, on this. So I, so I think, you know, that becomes something really interesting that not just more books, but more specialized kinds of, of, of books of what's it like to be a young Muslim woman? What's it like to be a Salafi Muslim? What's it like to do, you know, that kind of uh, thing where we were just writing these big sort of introductory books about Islam in America. Now we can go into much more detail about those things. So I, I'd love to, you know, see the kind of more specific sort of work, you know, a book length work that looks at Ahmet Erdogan, for example, the kinds of things that he did, you know, looking at Islam in, in hip hop. Uh, I haven't seen it yet, but uh, Suad Abdul Khabir has a new, uh, the new Muslim cool book, you know, I'd love to read that book. So the, those kinds of things I, I think are fascinating, you know, as any disciplines uh, uh, develop, you know, you get more and more done in more and more detailed work, uh, which I think is is crucial. So that, that, that's the second part. The first part about, uh, you know, uh, American Muslims, it's going to be fascinating in the age of President Trump, given the kinds of issues that, you know, he surrounded himself with Islamophobic kinds of folks. Uh, my hope is that you begin to see connections. So for the first time, I've seen the American Jewish Committee working formally with the Islamic Society of North America to create a national, you know, Muslim Jewish uh, 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 committee there. I think that becomes really crucial that we see our connections uh, with each other. I live in Los Angeles, so the uh, Archbishop Gomez, you know, who was born in Mexico, has been very outspoken in terms of support and protection of immigrants, not just Mexican immigrants, but other ones. And so I think, you know, you begin to not just see that history of Islam in America, but American Muslims beginning to make those kinds of coalitions, you know, with Jewish Americans. We made them with Japanese Americans. Actually, Japanese Americans made them with us post 9-11. You know, after 9-11, the first group to really stand up with American Muslims were Japanese Americans who knew their history post uh, Pearl Harbor and the internment camps. And, I, and I, you know, I have no doubt that we, meaning American Muslims, weren't interned, you know, post 9-11, precisely because the Japanese were interned. And we learned from that, you know? Yeah, and as as you reflect on you know, the types of challenges ahead. Where do you see your, your research headed? Uh, what, what kinds of projects are you yeah. currently working on? So, so it's a kind of funny thing that I've got two things on the go. And, and one of them, going back to what we were just talking about, uh, Oxford University Press has asked me to be uh, the general editor. Of their, they want to do a new two-volume uh, Oxford Encyclopedia of Islam in North America. And, you know, one of my first things to them was, okay, Let's be clear what we mean by North America, because I hope we mean North America and not just the U.S. and maybe a little bit of Canada. This is no, 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 no. We mean North America. So, you know, the first task is to assemble a, a group of 
uh, editors who work with me on this project who will look at Islam in North America, meaning the U.S., meaning Canada, meaning uh, uh, Mexico and the Caribbean. And I've been so fortunate to get uh, commitments to this from you know Sherman Jackson, you know the great scholar of Islam in America, from Kathleen Moore at UC Santa Barbara, from uh, Melanie Adrian at uh, Carleton University in Canada. And from this this wonderful uh, Mexican scholar, Camilla Pastor, who's at an institute in Mexico. And so, you know, the next stage is for the five of us to get together to figure out, plot this out, what this means. But, you know, this is a great uh, project by, you know, a very distinguished press, Oxford University Press, to say, let's let's come out with a new two-volume encyclopedia of Islam in North America. So that'll keep me busy for the next uh, little bit. Uh, but then my own uh, sort of interesting side project, and, you know, the, the book kind of alludes to this, meaning Muslims make in America, that I make the connection, and I'm smiling as I say this, you know, between... Between American Muslims and Merle Haggard, because that's my that's my target audience is people who know Merle Haggard who say, well, wait a minute, this guy's actually saying that American Muslims are Hag and not Christofferson and not Willie Nelson and not Johnny Cash and certainly not Hank Williams. Okay, I'm going to pay attention to this guy because he's speaking my language, you know, and kind of thing. And so uh, I want to write a book on Hank Williams. You know, I think Hank Williams is an extraordinary figure. I don't think there's enough work done on him. And I think it's this, you know, uh, you're just thinking of the uh, photo op is the wrong word, but I, I can't think of the right word. You know, this kind of thing of, wait, this American Muslim guy who's teaching at Jesuit school in theology wants to write a book about Hank Williams. You know, what's up with that? Well, I think Hank is extraordinary. Well, these all sound like very exciting and provocative projects, Amir, and I look forward to staying tuned and hopefully being able to, you know, inter- interact with people who may who, who may read your book that may not have thought they would read your book. And mm-hmm. I, I really hope that this book uh, gets out to the kinds of audiences you want. And my own two cents is it's... If a book is going to do it, it's it's written in that kind of accessible way that speaks to people, and I'm really excited to see where things go. So thanks again for chatting with us today. Thank you, Elliot. I really appreciate it. That was my conversation with Amir Hussein, professor of theological studies at Loyola Marymount University and former editor of the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, about his engaging book, Muslims and the Making of America published by Baylor University Press in 2006. Thanks for listening.